Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. During this edition of Spotlight, Christian broadcaster Janet Mefford interviews Lori Higgins with Illinois Family Institute. Their discussion centers on the American Psychological Association and its Division 44, the push to lower the age of consent, and efforts to normalize polyamory. Tell us what the APA is doing, because you are now saying that they have really lost their credibility now. Yeah, I don't think they had much credibility, but this really takes it to a whole new level. I did not realize that they have a Division 44 called the Society for the Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity, which was founded in 1985. But now this division has formed a what they call a consensual non-monogamy task force. So for those who aren't paying attention to sexual deviance in our culture, consensual non-monogamy is another word for, well, polyamory, or we would call it, normal people would call it adultery or sexual infidelity. The goal of this task force is actually to normalize polyamory, and they've formed this task force, and they have an advisory board, which I've listed all the people on the advisory board and given a brief description in my article. They're all people who affirm sexual non-monogamy and other forms of deviance like BDSM, bondage, discipline, sadomasochism, and they want to remove to de-stig- remove the taboo, remove the stigma, destigmatize all sorts of things, sexual and gender identities, dysfunctional sexual behaviors. That's the goal. Good grief. Do they say anything that you know of within the current DSM on the subject of polyamory? Well, I don't know if they do in the DSM. I know there have been people who were involved in trying to make some changes in the DSM. One of the people that's kind of instrumental in this that I hope people go to the article and read his, I have this brief description, his name is Richard Sprott, who's a lecturer in the Department of Human Development and Women's Studies at California State University in East Bay. And not only is he a practitioner of BDSM and a lecturer on the topic, he also did recently at a BDSM convention in Cleveland He did a workshop, I even hate to say this, I don't know what can be on the radio, about feces play. Oh, yes, okay. And here is also, he's also the chair of the Children, Youth, and Families Committee of this Division 44. Oh, great. So the question is, in what world is feces play considered psychologically healthy? And this is the person who's going to be advising the task force on their positions regarding polyamory. It also should be noted that they have a petition going that is asking for, and and this is a quote, a request to include, quote, consensual non-monogamy as a protected class. So you, I, many others have been warning about the dangers of including sexual orientation, the term in anti-discrimination policies and laws, because sexual orientation is just subjective feelings about sexual behavior. And so now that opens the door 
to other people claiming, well, my behavior, my sexual desires, no matter how perverse, they constitute a sexual orientation, and therefore they are now included in anti-discrimination policies and laws, which is one of the dangers of the Equality Act. Oh, absolutely. So many things that you just said there. One of the things that I think is very noteworthy in your article, Lori, is you mentioned Division 44's consensual non-monogamy task force promotes awareness and inclusivity about this stuff, but it says these include this consensual non-monogamy and diverse expressions of intimate relationships. These include, but are not limited to, people who practice polyamory, open relationships, swinging, relationship anarchy, and other types of ethical non-monogamous relationships. I almost don't want to ask the question, what is relationship anarchy? What are other types of ethical, non-monogamous relationships? I mean, this is basically anything goes, everything, if the Equality Act ever becomes law, would be protected with the backing of the APA, which I agree with you, is rapidly losing any credibility whatsoever. I think it's sealed its fate about being non-credible. I mean, yeah. one of the things about the APA is that you come away with is that they think the members of the AP, at least the ones that we hear about, because, of course, this is like the American Academy of Pediatrics that apparently has this trans-affirming protocol, but it's really only a handful of people whose views we realize or we, we know about. This idea that bad feelings that result from disapproval are intrinsically and always bad. In other words, shame regarding everything is intrinsically bad, and we know that that's not true. I mean, shame and guilt, healthy shame, healthy guilt, are that's just our conscience speaking. You pointed out exactly the words that stuck, struck out, stuck out to me, what relationship anarchy and other types of ethical non-monogamous relationships. Of course, they never define what constitutes ethical for them. Right, I Because that. I think most people understand that liberals view ethical as really essentially only being consent. That's the only thing that constitutes. And then they don't have a, they don't really have a strong argument why that would be the only criteria that would constitute an ethical relationship. Most people would say that a sexually unfaithful relationship is intrinsically unethical. Sure. Well, where does this leave pedophilia? I mean, this is what a lot of us have been talking about for the last couple of years, the dangers of the slippery slope, and more and more you're seeing people coming out and saying, no, this is just an orientation, and we've connected the dots. I know you have, Lori. If the Equality Act passes, then, you know, if you're just talking about sexual orientation and gender identity and anything goes and it's up to the individual to decide what is ethical, then who is the government to stop a minor attracted person, which is what a lot of these people are going by now? Right. That's the new lingo minor attraction. And they're coming out now. You've seen lectures. You've seen people maybe have seen TED Talks with people saying, well, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with those feelings as long as they don't act on them. And we'll see efforts to, to lower the age of consent. Many of your listeners might know about child drag queen Desmond yes. the Amazing, or Desmond, Desmond is, amazing, is Amazing, rather. Yep. There was a, a pedophile from England, Tom O'Connell was his name, or O'Connor, who came out and said, this is sexually arousing. To pedophiles, this is sexually arousing. The mother of this child you know, took umbrage at that. But if people are paying attention, they understand the dominant form that homosexuality has taken in cultures that approve of it has between adult men and pubescent boys. So we're going to get to this, you know, if consent is the only thing that matters and we keep lowering the age of consent and you have people like, 
Milo Yiannopoulos, who came out in a radio interview and said he was an enthusiastic participant in a sexual relationship between him and an adult priest. He's kind of backpedaled a little bit. But yes, that's where this is leading, because they're really, to the sexual anarchists and the relationship anarchists among us, there really is nothing that is off-limits. When you have someone talking about feces play, you realize that there are no boundaries. There's nothing that's inappropriate. They even say that feces play can be a part of healthy, natural relationships because one of their definitions of what's natural is if it occurs in nature, that makes it natural and that makes it good. But of course, we know all sorts of things occur in nature that humans would view as profoundly immoral and destructive. Well, and and this really points out the agenda here. The APA ideal, you know, should be ideally an ideological neutral organization that they want the best for every human being. I mean, the fact that they have a task force pushing this stuff, shouldn't they be pushing? I mean, I know this makes me sound like a dinosaur, Lori, but shouldn't they be pushing things like marriage, male woman marriage, the nuclear family? I mean, why would you form a task force like this other than to politicize the big gay agenda. I mean, that's what it really seems to come down to. It's the same argument. They use the same argument, you know, the idea that they're stigmatized and they're discriminated against, and that makes them feel bad. And feeling bad is the ultimate evil. And so what we have to do is undo the stigma so that they can feel good about profoundly unhealthy behavior. And you pointed out the non-diversity on the task force, there is no ideological diversity. In other words, they've come to a conclusion about the ethics and morality of these kinds of behaviors, and they're going to create a task force to come up with research that affirms, you know, confirmation bias that affirms their position on this. They're not looking, say, let's do research and find out if this is really healthy. But more importantly, the kind of research they're doing can't really address morality. All it can address is you know, people say, yeah, I felt bad when I experienced some disapproval. Therefore, this must be bad, the disapproval Mm. that is. And that's not getting at morality or ethics. That's just saying, yeah, people feel bad when someone says something they're doing is wrong. IFI's Lori Higgins from a recent interview with Christian broadcaster Janet Mefford. You can find Lori's articles at IllinoisFamily.org. IllinoisFamily.org. During part two of Illinois Family Spotlight, Lori discusses trans ideology. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. A story coming out of Connecticut reveals one of the most inevitable collisions on the current cultural landscape. The policymaking panel for interscholastic sports in Connecticut says a high school student must be able to compete according to the student's declared gender identity. The parents of three female track athletes are now suing in federal court, charging that allowing biological males to compete as females destroys the very idea of female athletic competition. The attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom said, quote, forcing girls to be spectators in their own sports is completely at odds with Title IX, a federal law designed to create equal opportunities for women in education and athletics. Connecticut's policy violates that law and reverses nearly 50 years of advances for women, end quote. Well, that's an inevitable collision. The current policy is an attempt to try to posit moral autonomy, one's stated or claimed gender identity over biological creational reality. It won't work. I'm Albert Mogler. 
Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. During this segment, we're highlighting remarks made by IFI's Lori Higgins about trans ideology. Lori spoke at a recent forum in Rockford. That event was hosted by Concerned Citizens for America, a chapter of the Illinois Family Institute. I think the church has to recover, if it ever had it here in America, a willingness Well, they have to teach about, and we as believers have to be willing to be persecuted for our faith. The halcyon days for being Christians in America are over. And the sooner we get that, it's not the same anymore. And it's only going to get worse. And the more, you know, I say, you've heard that expression, tip of the spear, you know, the people who go forward first, and and you're supposed to have people (laughs) behind your back. But if you don't, so if I'm like the tip of the spear, because and it's not just me, there's other people who've been doing it longer, I'll say things boldly and unequivocally. And they can marginalize me. I'm on the SPLC's hate groups list. I'm on the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. I'm on their list. If they can marginalize me, and then people look at me and say, well, I don't want that to happen to me, then I have no one following behind me. You know, like We have to all be willing to be persecuted of faith, and we should know that from the New Testament Oh, I, you know, so I've gotten some emails, usually from women, telling me they don't like the way I write. I call it sassy writing. They say Christians are never supposed to be sarcastic. That's what they say. So Doug Wilson has this great distinction. There's a difference between refugees from the world, so people who are suffering and are coming into the body of Christ or they're visiting churches or, and apostles of the world. I am writing about apostles of the world. I am writing about people who are promoting evil in the culture and they're promoting evil to children. If a 15-year-old came to me and said he was struggling with homosexuality or he felt like he might be a girl, I wouldn't talk the way I do in my articles. Yes, everyone can read them because I have to speak this. You know, I have to say this stuff. But if I'm interacting one-on-one, I'm very different. But we have to speak truth. If you're concerned about language, Serrated Edge is Doug Wilson's book about how Christians may speak boldly. It's small. You can get it online. But I just want to read this. This is Paul writing to Titus. And he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The testimony is true. In other words, Paul said there are people who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I've never said that. So, you know, like we are allowed, and I said, you know, C.S. Lewis, if you've read Abolition of Man, he talks about, like, I think he says, the little ones have to be taught to love what is lovely and feel disgust for what is disgusting and hate that which is hateful. How do you cultivate proper feelings if we're always talking like milk toasts? I mean, seriously, like this, we are doing double mastectomies on 13-year-olds. I don't care if someone calls me, well, I don't, actually, that's not true. I do care. I don't like being called a hateful bigot, but I'm willing to because I want to be able to say, I mean, I, that's not, I mean, you know, like we're told we're going to be persecuted. We're told the world is going to hate us because it first hated Christ. And I kind of say to people in this culture, in this day, if you're never encountering any persecution, no one's mocking you, no one's hating you, you probably are saying things you shouldn't say or not saying things that you should be 
I don't know if I said that right. You're doing something wrong. <laughs> when I came aboard, I said, I don't want to just say, hey, there's another alarming thing happening in the culture because that's everywhere, all sorts of groups. I wanted to unpack it so people understood the weaknesses and the fallacies used by the left to promote sexual deviance. I wanted to help people understand it. That's why my articles are longer than, hey, did you just know this was going on at the library? I want people to understand so that you guys can go out. I'm not a genius. I started to have to do this when I worked at Deerfield High School. That's how I got sort of proficient. And anybody can do it, but you've got to put the work in so you understand what they just said. Like, that doesn't make sense. I have to figure out what didn't make sense about that, so blah. Lori, would you talk about what's going on in our government schools, the disciple-making that is going on there, and what churches need to do in response yes. to help rescue our kids? One thing I want to say about bathroom policies, by the way, bathroom sexually integrating restrooms, which you will probably be surprised that's going on in more schools than you know, because sometimes they don't change policy. They just quietly tell that student that he can use the girls' restrooms. The policy is teaching children that in order to be loving and inclusive and compassionate, you have to relinquish your physical privacy in restrooms and locker rooms. Because I hear people say, well, there's dividers. And I said, like, women actually, most women don't even want to do their business in stall with a woman in the stall next to her. So, but what, what those policies are teaching children is you're a hateful, ignorant bigot if you don't want to be in the bathroom when that boy is in there. But there was an article in The Atlantic recently and it was a liberal father talking about what was going on in his kid's school. He's liberal, and it was a long article about a whole host of things, but I took an excerpt from it. He said kids were on their own, because they sexually integrated the, all the restrooms and locker rooms, and, or restrooms at least, and they said what happened, his son told him, who was in second or third grade, that the kids naturally decided on their own that this bathroom was formerly boys was going to be boys, and this one was formerly girls were going to be girls, but they're also like kids, this is happening in England too, girls are holding it until they get home because they were afraid to be in the bathroom, going to the bathroom when a boy might come in. If they have to come in and throw something in the garbage or, you know, there's boys there and they're, and they're afraid the boys are going to peek over the stall. So, I mean, this is a nightmare. I, so, but here's my deal. When I first came to IFI, I really was working hard to want people to be engaged. Even if you don't have kids in the school, it's a stewardship issue. Your taxes are being used to promote this garbage. They're paying the teachers' salaries who are activists in their culture. I still want that to happen. We're, you know, there's people who sit on t school boards that don't have kids any longer in the school. So you don't have to have kids in the school. But now I say, you've got to get your kids out of public schools. Like, when they're teaching trans ideology to kindergartners, when they're sexually integrating the private spaces, when you have adults who don't understand what that means, this is not a place that can be in charge of your children. But there are many parents who cannot homeschool for a variety of reasons, and they can't afford existing private schools. If you have multiple kids and they're charging anywhere from five to 10,000, my daughter in San Diego, the classical Christian school that she wants her kids in for her fourth grade son is 18,000 a year. So you, and she has three kids. So churches must be creative. They must either use money like a mission fund to help parents if they want to put their kids in existing schools and they can't afford it, to help them afford it, or they have to create affordable Christian schools. And I say, we have a whole, like, we have a lot of seniors 
retired Christians who have all sorts of skills and knowledge. I'm not saying that they have to teach, although they might be able to teach. Maybe they don't want to teach part-time. Maybe they can co-teach. We have all these resources. Use them. John Piper, um, some of you, you know who John Piper is, the pastor, theologian, amazing guy. And he says, you don't have a right to retire Christians and then play golf for the last 30 years of your life. Like, there's work for the kingdom to be done. And so, you know, we got to get our kids out of school. And, and Doug Wilson does it in Moscow, Idaho, where he has his church and they have New St. Andrews College. And he says, anyone in their church that wants to get their kids either in their own school, which they created, or an existing one, if any member of their church comes and says, we want our kids out of public schools, they make it happen. And that's what needs to happen. So you guys have to go to your church leaders and tell them that. Can you speak about some of the characteristics, other than anatomical characteristics, of femininity and masculinity in secular or biblical terms? That's a really interesting question. I'd say churches need to do a better job on this, too. I don't know if any of you know the website, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, but they have a really good definition. because they're, So first of all, I want to say, stereotypes don't come first and then work backwards. Stereotypes emerge from some reality, some anthropological reality. And we know this because, okay, Will and Grace, homosexuals love that show. It's filled with stereotypes. The whole show is built on stereotypes. They didn't object to those. So the problem is if our stereotypes get too rigid. So we can say men tend to go into engineering. Men's they know men's brains are different than women's brains. Structurally, they're different. But there are women, so, you know, there are women who are interested in engineering and really good at math. And they, so at a time when you say no woman can be a doctor or no woman can be a pilot, that's too rigid. So I, tell me if I'm not answering your question or I'm not. So I think one task that, see, what I think is stereotypes emerge from anthropological truths. And, but what, what our chief task as parents is, is to affirm a boy as a boy. That doesn't mean, if you have a boy who's not very athletic and he's more sensitive and he, get, and he gets intimidated by the really rough and tumble boys, my three grandsons in California are like, if there's a spectrum of maleness, they're like off the charts on the wild, crazy, violent, aggressive. <laughs> You know, they would be intimidating to some boys because they're very, very boisterous and, you know. So, we, but we can't, what we don't say is to the boy who's sensitive and stuff that you're not a boy. You know, we don't say to him that you're more like a girl. There's just a spectrum. Like, I never felt, like when I was growing up, there weren't as many women who were tall. So, I always thought that was what it was to be feminine and attractive, was to be petite. And I was not petite. And so now, if I were growing up in this culture, I probably would have thought, well, maybe I'm a boy. I just thought I wasn't very feminine, you know? I mean, I just, but I never thought, but it wasn't like, I want to, I think I'm a boy. And so, so I think, and I, I never felt really good with like frilly things, like roughly things, because I thought, oh, I'm, that doesn't, I'm big and, you know, that doesn't look right. I, but I don't, but now there's all these, Starting, I was a hippie, so, you know, in those years it was jeans and t-shirts, everybody looked the same. I think there's a way you can, if you don't feel very female, you don't have to force them to wear dresses, but you don't let them cross-dress, you know? Even when women wear suits, their suits look different from men's suits. And so I think we have to just, we should reaffirm 
the maleness of boys, that you are a boy, and the femaleness of girls, but you can't do it so rigidly that people feel like, I can't fit that, and therefore I'm the opposite sex. You don't give girls crew cuts, but they can have short hairstyles, you know? I mean, these are, it's sort of like, we, should, we didn't even need to answer these questions before. What I said is, every culture, it doesn't, like our clothing looks different and different, I'm talking about trans, you know, nationally, across countries. They've always had a way to distinguish males from females. They don't all look the same. We don't all dress the same in every culture. But it's a good thing in culture to reaffirm biological differences. The only trick is don't be so rigid that you're saying that someone, that someone says, I can't fit in that. And what I was saying about Council for Biblical Manhood, I think a good thing, creating a secure sexual identity where you identify with the sex you are is trickier for boys traditionally than girls, conventionally, and for a lot of reasons. But one of the things they said, which I think is really helpful for, because all boys can do it, is men protect and provide for people who are weaker. So men do that for their families. Now, if there's no man in the family, of course a woman can step in and do that. But every boy, no matter how sensitive he is, no matter how, if he's not like rough and tumble, he's not very athletic, he likes literature, you know, every boy can feel, I can take care of people who are more vulnerable than I am. And I think that's a really good thing to teach people. Or, oh, I want to say one thing about equality. It's a really important concept. Equality means we treat like things alike. If they're not alike, you don't treat them as if they are. So when you say, like, homosexual marriage, they talk about marriage equality. The union of two people of the same sex is different from the union of two, two people of different sexes. When homosexuals say, I'm only attracted to someone of the same sex, they are saying, necessarily, there is something substantively different about men and women. And so, you, so therefore, a union composed of two of the same sex is by nature different. You don't have to treat them as equal. Equality, commitments to equality means you treat like things alike. What do you think is going to happen to win in sports? <laughs> All it takes is one man in every sport and every woman's record will be gone. So it's destroyed. Title IX means nothing because of the trans movement. This thing that women fought hard for, I have daughters that were athletes, it's over. You get one diver, one male diver, one male gymnast, one soccer player, one rugby, lacrosse, everything. They're all, all the records will be gone. Laurie, what can we do to defeat the Equality Amendment? Well, you've got to be active. You've got to, well, starting from the grassroots, you know, run for these local offices, be vigilant. I've found that conservatives, at least in school issues, they often get battle-weary very easily. There'll be one skirmish about one inappropriate book, and then they're done. And so we have to be, we have to persevere like the left perseveres. The Illinois Family Institute's Lori Higgins at a forum in Rockford hosted by Concerned Citizens for America, a chapter of IFI. A reminder, you can find Lori's articles at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org. Please support the work of IFI. Remember your gift to IFI is tax deductible. And tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. 
For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize.